0: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
1: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Minnesota, Oregon, and Wisconsin. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. (laughs) Laura Simonson grew up in Michigan, fishing with her dad and rocking the Girl Scouts. In her teens, she started to struggle with some mental health problems, but with the support of her family, made it through the best that she could. As an adult, she fell in love, got married, and gave birth to seven, I repeat, seven children whom she loved and adored. And while she loved and adored them, her mental health struggles worsened and she and her husband wound up getting a divorce and her children went to live with their father. However, even that didn't work out because according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, in 2010, all seven children were placed into foster care with Laura's father. Regardless of whether her children were with their father or her father, Laura stayed in touch. And in June of 2012, when Laura was 37 years old, tragedy struck. One of her daughters, who had been in an accident early in her life that resulted in permanent disabilities, suddenly and unexpectedly passed away. According to KAAL-TV, Laura's sister says that this is when everything changed for her. Laura was hurting. I mean, she lost a child, but she wasn't the type to let anyone in, so instead she became distant, and the people who loved her most really started to worry about her. It's around this time that her father tells the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel that Laura started placing escort ads online. Her family was concerned, and they did what they could to help, but in the end, Laura was an adult, and they could only do so much. On November 1st of 2013, Laura stopped by her mother's house in Farmington, Minnesota to spend some time with family and just catch up on life. They talked for a bit and enjoyed each other's company, but unbeknownst to everyone there, it would be the last time that they would ever see her alive. On November 2nd, her mother woke up and noticed that Laura's van was parked outside of her house, but Laura wasn't in it and she certainly wasn't there. They tried getting a hold of her calling and texting for a few weeks, but all of their calls went unanswered and every text went unresponded to. So on November 22, 2013, they called the Farmington police and officially reported Laura missing. In this missing persons report, Laura's mother told authorities everything she knew about her daughter's current state, but added that she thought her daughter might be with a 52-year-old man named Steven Zelich. Farmington police immediately started looking into Laura's disappearance and according to a press release obtained by KAAL-TV from the Olmsted County attorney, within just a week of her being reported missing, a phone call came in from an employee at the Microtel Inn in Rochester, Minnesota, 70 miles from where she was last seen. The hotel had gotten a crime alert about Laura's disappearance and recognized her as someone who'd recently rented a room there. The hotel staff told police that Laura had checked in with an unknown male on November 2nd, but that he checked out alone on the 3rd. The room had been booked in her name, but the unknown male had driven there and paid for it. They needed to figure out who this unknown male was, so authorities tried running the license plate number he'd put down on the booking form, but they came back with nothing, literally nothing. The plates did not exist, and he had paid in cash, so there was no credit card information that would lead back to this guy's identity. While they were working to confirm the identity of the man Laura was seen with at the hotel, a friend of hers called the detective on her case and let them know that she'd recently been chatting online with a guy whose email was Stephen 53227 at yahoo.com, who went by the usernames of Stephen 53227 and Mr. Handcuffs. The name Steven rang a bell. Police did some digging and found chats between the two that spanned from September to October of 2013 on the websites CollarMe and a Yahoo chat board called Master B's Slave Room. Both were used for BDSM hookups. The conversations between the two indicated that Laura was interested in becoming the Stephen Guy's sex slave. He would be her master. This Steven guy seemed to constantly be on the lookout for what he referred to as a no-limit sex slave across multiple different BDSM platforms. Police ran the email address and were able to confirm that it belonged to none other than a Steven Zelich, who came back to a current address in West Allis, Wisconsin, an almost five-hour drive from where Laura went missing from and an almost four-hour drive from the Micro Inn Hotel. Farmington police started connecting the dots and showed the CCTV footage from the Microtel Inn to the West Allis police, and they recognized him. Not because he was some known criminal in the area with an extensive criminal history who they'd been in contact with multiple times. No, they recognized him because he was a former police officer in their county. I say former police officer because he resigned in 2001 after an altercation, which many media sources say involved a prostitute, but let's unpack this incident for a second. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel was able to get the police report of the incident between Zelich and said prostitute, and this is how it went. In 2001, a woman running down the road in a bikini, screaming and knocking on doors asking for someone, anyone for help, reported to police that a man had just raped her. She told officers that a guy at the place she worked at offered her $300 to go back to his place for a private dance. He drove her back to his home, and before getting out of the car, she says he gave her $125 of the promised $300 up front. They walked inside, and once in his room, she heard what sounded like handcuffs in his pocket. She asked him about them, and this is when she tells the outlet that Zelich went ballistic. She tried to leave, but says that Zelich grabbed her by the neck, threw her onto the floor, and started choking her. She asked him, are you going to kill me? to which she says he responded with, are you gonna have sex with me? Thankfully, she was able to kick him off and run for her life. The victim was able to take police back to the place that she says it happened at and identified Zelich as the man who attacked her. He was brought in for questioning by the very department that he worked for at the time. Now, Zelich denied all accounts of her story and said that he, in fact, was the victim. That he had brought her back to his place, not for any particular reason, and watched her take money out of his wallet and put it into her purse. So, that's why he says he grabbed her neck, they struggled and fell onto the floor. According to him, he let up because he realized that if he didn't, he was going to hurt her. It seems odd that you would watch someone take money from your wallet, place it into their purse, and would wait until that entire transaction was completed before reacting. And when you did react, you didn't just grab the purse and get your money, you grabbed the woman by the neck and wrestled with her. I shit you not that the police made this victim give Stephen his $125 back. And for what it's worth, it wasn't in her purse. It was tucked away in her hair. And on top of making her return $125 to her accused rapist, they actually arrested her for two outstanding warrants, one for prostitution and one for a traffic violation Knowing she had outstanding warrants, she still ran for her life, banging on doors, pleading for help, and because she did, she was arrested. A few months after this incident, Zellich resigned from the West Allis Police Department, and the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel got a copy of his resignation letter. It reads as follows... I understand that disciplinary actions have been or may be filed against me for certain conduct in my capacity as a West Allis police officer. In order to avoid the filing of charges and or a public hearing on such charges, I hereby resign as a police officer with the West Allis Police Department effective August 17, 2001 at 12 a.m. And it worked. Zelich never faced any criminal charges for what he did to this woman. Being a cop was Zelich's get-out-of-jail-free card, and with his clean record, he could go and work wherever else he wanted, and no one would know a thing. He even received a lump sum of money to cover his saved-up leave and vacation time. A third party told the outlet that Zealich's victim didn't want to cooperate in pressing criminal charges— But can you blame her? When she tried to report it, she was the one who wound up in jail. But let's continue with Laura's case. In January of 2014, after authorities matched up the man mentioned in her missing persons report as the man she was chatting with on the BDSM sites and the man she was with at the Microtel Inn, they decided to pay him a visit. They headed out to his apartment and took a look around for any signs that Laura might be there, but they found nothing, not a single hint that Laura had ever been there. So the investigation continued. In March of 2014, the Wisconsin Bureau of Criminal Investigations and the FBI got involved. This isn't uncommon when they think a crime might have been committed across two different states, and they too decided to pay Zelich a visit and question him again about Laura's disappearance. In Zelich's discussion with the WBCI and the FBI, he told them that he'd talked to Laura online, but that he'd never spoken to her in person or even over the phone and that, frankly, he didn't even know what state she lived in, which seemed odd considering he'd already been questioned by a different agency about her disappearance. Surely, that time police came to check your house for a missing woman they thought might be in your apartment is going to stick with you, but I guess not when you're Steven Zelich. November to March and Laura's investigation seemed to be making quite a bit of headway. But after the WBCI and the FBI made their contact with Stephen, it seemed like the leads and updates stopped coming. So someone did something. According to the Wisconsin Law Journal, an anonymous person pulled out an ad in the Wisconsin Super Ads and wrote, Stephen Mark Zelich is a sadist who has enslaved a petite female named Laura Jean Simonson. He keeps her naked, handcuffed, shackled, and caged. He has no intention of ever releasing this poor woman who suffers various mental disabilities. She has been whipped and tortured by Stephen Zellage since November 2nd, 2013. Laura is the mother of seven young children and has not been allowed by Stephen to contact them in any way. The police have not been able to locate where Stephen has Laura imprisoned. Please join our efforts to find and free Laura Simonson. That's a lot of new information, and by someone who seems set on making sure that if no one was going to arrest Zelich, that the world would know what they think he's doing. But even with that, the updates stalled until June 5th of 2014. On June 5th, 2014, someone driving down North Como Road in Geneva, Wisconsin, just a 40-minute drive from Zelich's apartment, called the police to report that there were suitcases in the roadway. When police got there to move them, they opened them up only to find the body of Laura Simonson. She was found naked with her hands behind her back, a ball gag strapped in her mouth with a collar, and a rope wrapped around her neck multiple times and tied. But Laura wasn't alone. There was one severely decomposed body in each of the two suitcases. And while police were able to identify Laura pretty quickly, they had no idea who the second body could belong to. She, too, was found naked. Her hands were tied behind her back with the same kind of rope found around Laura's neck, and she was partially covered by a garbage bag. With the help of the police and the medical examiner's office, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reported that Jane Doe had an overbite, crooked bottom teeth, and a heart-shaped tattoo on her lower left abdomen. That she was possibly a Caucasian female between the ages of 15 and 36, so petite like Laura. Between 5'2 to 5'4 with long straight dark brown or black hair and two piercings in each ear. Fox 6 even released a sketch of what law enforcement and the medical examiner's office thought Jane Doe might have looked like and asked for the police's help in identifying her. It took 19 days, but on June 24, 2014, police positively identified Jane Doe, the second woman in the suitcases, as 21-year-old Jenny Gomez. She was actually a petite blonde, just like Laura, who grew up in foster care in Cottage Grove, Oregon. No one even knew she was missing. In 2008, six years before Jenny's body was found, when she was only 15 years old, she got pregnant and gave birth to a little boy. When he was two and she was 17, she lost custody of her son to his father and was removed from her current foster home and placed into a new one. In this new foster home, Jenny really seemed to get her life back on track. According to Oregon Live, in this new home, she graduated high school with honors and even won a two-year scholarship to a local community college. In her first year of community college, she decided to move out of her foster home and in with friends who lived closer to school and her foster parents supported whatever Jenny felt was best for her. I mean, they were proud of the progress she had made. But in 2012, after completing that first year of college, she dropped out. In May of that year, she told her foster mother that she was going to be moving to California to live with her friends. However, in August of 2012, while still in town, she told her friends that she was going to be moving to Milwaukee, which is only six miles outside of West Allis. No one ever heard from Jenny again. Jenny Gomez had never been reported missing, which is why it took so long to figure out who she was. Fox 6 reports that her foster parents figured she'd simply moved on with her life. Now, knowing the previous connection between Laura's case and Steven Zelich, police immediately went back to that Microtel Inn and processed the ever-living shit out of the room that they stayed in. They went to Zelich's apartment and did the same. Crime scene investigators, some dressed in hazmat suits, were seen exiting his apartment with bag after bag of evidence, and then a refrigerator was removed. A fucking refrigerator. This is an investigation into two dead women found in suitcases on the side of the road, and the person of interest refrigerator has been seized as evidence. Authorities must have used rapid DNA testing instead of your average lab that takes months and months to get back with results. Because by June 24th, 2014, just 19 days after Laura and Jenny's bodies were found, the results were in. In the room Zelich and Laura stayed in at the Microtel Inn, they found blood evidence that could eliminate 99.8% of the population, but could not eliminate Laura. In Steven's house, they found a pair of handcuffs that had a mixture of two sets of DNA on it. They could eliminate 98% of the population in this instance, but could not eliminate Zelich or Laura. They also got the results of DNA found on the inside of the knot on the rope that bound Jenny's hands behind her back. And it was a positive match to Steven Zellich. Three days later, police marched down to where Zelich currently worked as a security guard and arrested him, but not for murder. Instead, Stephen Zelich was charged with two counts of hiding a corpse and held on a $1 million bond. This was a shock and a little bit of a disappointment to a lot of people, but the investigation so far had been into confirming that Zelich was the person who dumped their bodies on the side of Como Road, Homicide charges would have to come from the counties in which the homicides took place in. And considering Laura and Jenny were found severely decomposed inside of suitcases, it was clear to law enforcement that whatever happened to them hadn't happened recently and hadn't happened where they were found. When Zelich was arrested, he was taken in for questioning, and you'd assume being a former police officer linked to two decomposing women found in suitcases on the side of the road 40 minutes from where he lived, he'd clam up and hire an attorney before a single word could come out of his mouth. But that's not what happened. The dude sang like a canary. He told investigators that Laura wasn't his first victim, that Jenny was that he'd met Jenny online in 2010 and reconnected with her two years later in 2012 on a BDSM website called Collar Me. Jenny and Zelich talked for a while on the website before Stephen offered to fly her out from Oregon to come live with him in Milwaukee. Problem being, he actually lived in West Allis. Stephen told police that he never intended on having a long-term arrangement with her, but admits that that's the impression Jenny was under. Prior to leaving Oregon for Milwaukee, Zelich gave Jenny a list of things to do, which included shutting down any social media accounts she had open. And she did. Her friends verified that after she told them that she was moving to Milwaukee, her Facebook account disappeared. Zelich couldn't remember when they'd met up. He kept saying it was either late 2012 or early 2013. So police drove him around the area. He claimed to have booked the hotel room with her after he picked her up from the airport. And he pointed out the Comfort Inn and Suites, which was the quality inn at the time that they were there. Authorities checked their booking records and found that Zelich had booked a room there on August 26, 2012 and checked out on the 28th. The hotel Zelich took Jenny to was in Kenosha. It was three times further away from the airport he picked her up from than his own apartment. According to Zelich, he and Jenny checked in that Friday and had BDSM sessions throughout the night and all day Saturday. The sessions included putting a ball gag in her mouth, blindfolding her, and what he refers to as breath play, where he would tighten and loosen a rope around her neck before she would lose consciousness. He says that on Sunday morning, they were having another breath play session, and during the course of it, she died. He tells officers that he knew she was dead because she lost control of her bowels on the floor. According to him, Jenny's death was completely accidental. But considering the fact that it takes five minutes for someone to die after completely restricting blood and oxygen from their brain, it's a hard story to believe. Five minutes doesn't sound like a long time when you're watching a movie or listening to a podcast, but when you're tightening a rope around someone's neck who would have lost consciousness in the first 10 seconds, five minutes is a long time. He could have let up at any point in time during those additional 590 seconds and allowed blood and oxygen to return to Jenny's brain, but he didn't. Regardless of his extensive training during his years as a police officer, he admits that he never once tried to resuscitate Jenny, nor did he call 911 for help. Instead, the Post Bulletin reports that he panicked, emptied her own suitcase, put her body inside of it, checked out of the hotel, and drove her body back to his apartment in West Allis. When he got home, he took her body in the suitcase and brought it inside. He then proceeded to take the drawers and shelves out of his refrigerator and put her body into it, where she remained for the next 15 months. More than a year goes by, and in September of 2013, Zelich starts talking to Laura on the same BDSM website he'd met Jenny on. Laura agreed to come to Milwaukee to live with him and become his 24-7, no-limits sex slave. She, like Jenny, was under the impression that they were going to be going into a long-term living situation together, and once again, Zelich confirms that he had no intentions of following through with that idea. Prior to meeting up with Laura, just like he did with Jenny, Zelich gave her a list of instructions but this time the list was longer. It included telling her to sell her belongings, to not update her driver's license or pay off any outstanding traffic tickets, to get rid of her van and all social media accounts, to shave her body and paint her toenails hot pink. When Jenny and Laura's bodies were found, both of their toenails were still painted hot pink. Zealots told Laura she could only bring three bags with her, saying that she wouldn't need much, and instructed her not to tell anyone where she was going or who she was going with. He planned a drive from Wisconsin to Michigan to pick her up and told her not to call or text him during his drive. His claim was that all of this was to set the tone for their slave-master relationship, but it sounds a lot like he wanted it to look like she planned to run away and didn't want to be found. It also sounds like he didn't want any phone pings linking him to the day and location she was last seen, and to be really certain that didn't happen, he actually left his phone at home. Laura did as she was told, and on November 2nd, 2013, the Post Bulletin reports that she dropped her van off in front of her mother's house and with her bags, walked the few blocks down the road to Aiken Road Elementary School, where Zelich picked her up. Just like he had with Jenny, instead of driving Laura to his apartment, he drove her to a hotel. I mean, it's not like he could take her to his apartment, there was a body in the refrigerator. The hotel he took Laura to was only an hour away from the elementary school he picked her up from, and was still an almost four-hour drive away from his apartment which she thought she'd be living at with him. According to that press release obtained by KAAL-TV, they stayed in the hotel room the entire weekend except for one trip out where Zelich grabbed some pizza. He says that despite his experience with Jenny 15 months prior, his BDSM sessions with Laura were more intense. He bound her legs and feet together with two-inch wide tape, gagged her, blindfolded her, and wrapped a rope around her neck several times in order to do his breath play. We know now that breath play is the tightening and loosening of something that's constricting your airway and the oxygen to your brain, but it's going to be really hard to loosen a rope that's wrapped around your neck several times. Just like Jenny, Laura also died on a Sunday morning, after which Zelich claims was breathplay gone wrong, and once again, he didn't try to resuscitate her, he didn't call 911, he just emptied her suitcase, put her inside of it, and checked out of the hotel. He put the suitcase containing Laura's body into the trunk of his car and went back to his apartment, but this time he didn't take her out. Instead, he went inside, took Jenny's body out of the refrigerator, put her back into her suitcase, which he had kept this entire time, and took Jenny out to his car and put the suitcase containing her body into the same trunk that Laura's was now in. And just left them there. It was November in Wisconsin, so it was cold, and he figured the temperature outside would stop the decomposition process. And if he already had one body in the trunk, it made sense to have them both in there instead of one in the trunk and one in his refrigerator. When police had come to Zelich's apartment looking for Laura in January of 2014, they had missed a body in his refrigerator by two months. There were no signs of Laura there because she was in his trunk. After the death of Laura, Zelich went along with his life as normal. With two dead women in the trunk of his car, he continued posting online looking for another 24-7 no-limits sex slave. The Post Bulletin reports that Zelich was actually in contact with a woman named Petra who was considering becoming his no-limits torture slave and discussing the fact that there would be no safe word. His last communication with Petra was the day before Jenny and Laura's bodies were found. Zelich continued going to work as normal, driving every day with Jenny and Laura's bodies in his trunk, but that became problematic as winter changed to spring and spring was about to become summer. As the weather warmed up, the smell in his car got worse and worse. He was a heavy smoker, so that covered up the smell a bit, and when that didn't work, he'd spray something to try and mask it. But one day in June of 2014, while he was at work, a co-worker passed his car and made a comment about how bad it smelled. And that's when he knew that he had to get rid of the bodies. So sometime between June 1st and June 5th of 2014, he took the 40-minute drive to Geneva and wandered around until he found a desolate stretch of road where there were no houses and no streetlights, took the suitcases out of his car and threw them into a ditch, never thinking that within just a matter of days, they'd be found and linked back to him. But they were. In July of 2014, Zelich had his preliminary hearing for the two charges of hiding a corpse. And even though he'd given police damn near every detail a prosecutor could ever need to convict him, this motherfucker pled not guilty. Which seemed insane considering the fact that he hadn't even been charged with murder yet and he had to know that was coming. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that his attorney argued that the charges might not stick because Zelich left the suitcases in plain view, that he wasn't trying to conceal their bodies, he wanted them to be found. Dude concealed Jenny's body in his refrigerator for 15 months and concealed Jenny and Laura both in suitcases that were also concealed in his trunk for 8 months. I think the concealment argument shit the bed a long time ago, but a defense attorney's gonna do what a defense attorney's got to do. A month later, 2 months after finding Jenny and Laura's bodies, Zelich was finally charged with first-degree homicide. But not in both murders, and not even in the murder he seemed to have the most known ties to. He was only charged in Jenny's case. And this son of a bitch pleads not guilty again. Eight months went by of small court appearances here and there about Discovery and stuff that made the news but didn't really update anybody on the case. But in April of 2015, as they were preparing to go for trial for Jenny's murder, a judge ruled that during the process of her trial, the prosecution wouldn't be allowed to mention anything about Laura. They obviously appealed the decision considering the two deaths were so intertwined, but the appeal was denied again. It's mind-numbingly frustrating, but from a legal standpoint, I kind of get it. As of yet, Zelich still hadn't been charged in Laura's murder, so bringing it up at Jenny's trial would be kind of a legal gray area that would be easily appealed after an unwanted verdict by the defense. That gray area, however, would become very black and white in November of 2015. Two years after Zelich strangled Laura Simonson with the rope found still wrapped and tied around her neck, he was finally charged with her murder, and they didn't go light on him either. He was charged with murder in the first degree, intentional murder in the second degree, and unintentional murder in the second degree while committing a felony offense. It took them a long time, but they made sure that they had one hell of a case against him and that he wouldn't walk away without taking some kind of responsibility for Laura's death. And with those charges and a third appeal on the judge's decision in Jenny's case, he finally overturned it and said that he would allow for testimony about Laura's case to be admitted into Jenny's trial. Jenny's trial was scheduled to start in just a month, and with a giant case of the O-Fox, Zelich decided to change his plea to guilty for a lesser charge of first-degree reckless homicide, which could get him up to 45 years and an additional five years for hiding the corpse, which he also changed to a guilty plea. It's no life sentence, but it removed the possibility of no sentence at all if he was found not guilty. And because he didn't have to go to trial, other women who were going to have to testify to their experiences with Zelich no longer had to go to trial either. He was ultimately sentenced to 35 years for Jenny's murder and an additional three for hiding her body, but he still had another set of murder charges to answer to. You'd think that because he pled guilty to Jenny's murder that he'd go ahead and plead guilty to Laura's, but that's not exactly how it went. He waited until December of 2016 to change his plea to guilty in Laura's case. In February of 2017, he agreed to a sentencing deal of 25 years in Laura's death to a charge of second-degree murder with intent, not admitting to any premeditation. He'll serve his first sentence in Wisconsin, and once that one is finished, he'll be moved to Minnesota to finish out his second. Considering Zelich's age, this is a life sentence. He's currently sitting in Dodge Correctional, the same prison as Chris Watts, and he will never see another free day so long as he shall live. A lot of people have wondered through the years if maybe there are more victims of Zelich's out there, and in my sleuthing, I think there might be at least one. Fox 6 reported that Zelich met a girl in 2006 on Caller Me, and they began a kind of online dating relationship. Now, that relationship didn't work out, but their friendship did, and she moved herself and her kids into his place, and they became his roommates for a year. While she was living there, Fox Six says that she wandered down to his basement where she found a big metal dog crate and a bunch of bondage equipment. She never said anything, but in August of 2007, Zelich just casually happened to mention that he'd kept a sex slave in a cage for seven years and would come home from work on his lunch breaks when he was a cop to check on her. This freaked her the fuck out, so when he went to work one day, she got herself a U-Haul and got her and her kids the hell out of there. And you might think, oh, maybe he's just making shit up to try and sound cool or whatever Zelich defines as cool, which is a road I don't even want to go down. But after Zelich was charged, a woman joined a website called Websleuths and posted that she'd actually met up with Zelich on a few occasions. She had met him on a BDSM website in 2003. Her experience with Zelich was eerily similar to what we know about his time with Jenny and Laura. He used a ball gag on her, put a hood over her head, and they too did breath play. According to her posts, they had no safe word, just like Zelich had talked about with Petra. And at times, the bondage equipment would make it hard for her to breathe. When she would beg for air, he would simply tell her to wait a little longer, which she says was usually 15 to 30 minutes, and sometimes he would even leave the room and go and watch TV during that time. The two discuss what being his sex slave would look like if they went down that route, and he told her that he would keep her in a cage in his office, and that if he had company, he'd put the cage in his bedroom closet. When she asked what he would do if he got sick of her, he said that he would sell her. But the cage thing sounds familiar. This poster said that Zelich actually showed her a picture of his former sex slave whom he had bragged to his roommate about keeping in a cage. Just like Jenny and Laura, this poster says that the woman was petite and blonde. Through my research, I found a two-year-old comment on Twitter by a woman who says she knew Zellich. I reached out to her and she was willing to talk to me about her experience with him. And when she did, it all sounded eerily similar. She too is a beautiful blonde who met him on Caller Me in 2004. He told her that if she agreed to be a sex slave, that it would be consensual, non-consensual, and that she could never leave. He told her she'd leave her ID and phone at home and would live in a cage, have shackles around her arms, eat out of a dog bowl, and if she needed to use the bathroom, she could use a bucket. Every now and then, he said that she'd be able to sleep in a bed. He told her that there would be electric play and that they would do obedience sessions where no matter how bad it got, she couldn't make a sound. She says he told her these sessions would be to teach her and that his goal was success, that he didn't want to beat her, but it was necessary to establish boundaries. I can't even begin to fathom the sadistic mindset you'd have to be in to tell a woman you have to beat her to set boundaries." She, too, said that Zelich talked to her about a slave he'd kept for years, but this time, the only time I've heard of an outcome for the woman in the cage, He told her that she'd had a family emergency and left, but that seems suspicious considering that would mean that she had some kind of contact with the outside world while in his cage, which doesn't seem to follow his guidelines with anyone else. So I got curious. I looked up missing people in NamUs around Milwaukee and narrowed down my search to a time frame before this online romance slash roommate moved in and found one woman who went missing, and she didn't go missing missing from Milwaukee. She went missing from West Allis, where Zelich lived and once worked as a police officer. 24-year-old Sarah Martin was last heard from on November 22, 2001. Sarah Martin was also young, petite, and blonde, and according to NamUs, she has never been found. I called their local police department and got shuffled around to a few different divisions before I made it to someone in the sensitive crimes unit. I let them know that this was going to come off absurd, but I'm researching two murders committed by a man in your jurisdiction who's told three people he had a caged sex slave for several years. And aside from one mention of a family emergency that doesn't seem to fit, no one seems to know whatever happened to her. I let them know that I'd run a search in NamUs and found a single missing person that could match the time frame and also seem to match his victim pattern and that I just wanted to put it on their radar. I wish I was kidding when I told you that the detective then asked me, so do you know where she is? No, I don't, but it might be worth asking him. To this day, no one has ever located Sarah Martin, and no one seems to know anything about the identity or the outcome of that sex slave Zelich showed pictures of and bragged about to three different women. For all photos and maps pertaining to this case and a few more mortifying encounters women had with Selich that didn't make it into this episode, check out Jenny and Laura's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about the absolute insanity that is this case. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.